Um, so one of the more profound movies in the past 20 years, or more profound set of movies in the past 20 years, are Zoolander 1 and 2, and, which I hope that you've seen both of them. Mary Clark and I watched Zoolander 2 this summer. It's awful. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen that. But um, both of these movies answer the question, who am I? Um, it's actually front and center in both of the movies. It's actually really blatant in the second movie, actually to an absurd level. There's this scene in Zoolander 2 where, are y'all familiar with Zoolander, the premise? There's Derek Zoolander, for those of you who don't know, he's a male model who's ridiculously, ridiculously good looking, and uh, his whole identity is wrapped up in the fact that he's ridiculously good looking. And there's this other male model named Hansel, um, and then there's this evil uh, warlord named Dr. Bugatu, it's a great movie. So, second movie, there's this scene where uh, Zoolander is on this rooftop in Italy and he, he yells out, who am I? And then uh, it cuts over and Hansel, who's played by Owen Wilson, is also on the rooftop and he's like, um, he says, hey Hansel, are you trying to figure out who you are too? And Hansel says, yeah. And then Katy Perry's also on the rooftop because um, they have to throw cameos in there for people to go to the movie, I guess. And so Katy Perry, he says, hey, Katy. And Katy says, yeah, it's like when, we, when will we find out who we really are? Um, and then Neil deGrasse Tyson is also on the roof. And he says, who am I? And uh, Zoolander says, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I love that when it's a cameo and they have to say the person's name of the cameo, you know it's a really famous person. Uh, so he said, Neil deGrasse Tyson, even you don't know who you are? And he says, in an ever-expanding universe, slowly pulling itself apart into nothingness, what use does the question, who am I, even have? All right, so um, both of these movies, the question of who am I is actually twinned with this question, who is my king? So for Zoolander, the king of his life, the most important thing in his life, um, the standard by which he orders his reality is this ideal of being ridiculously, ridiculously good-looking. And so this was his king. This was the most important thing for him, and it answered for him the question, who am I? This is an absurd example, right? But it reveals the principle that whenever you name something as king, you actually give it the authority to name you. When you name something as king, you actually give it the authority to name you. Name your king, and your king names you. Now, we see this everywhere. It's it's probably most obvious in sports um, when you've got guys like Michael Jordan and Brett Favre who took so long to retire. Right? Why did they take so long to retire? Because for them, for Michael Jordan, basketball and then baseball and then basketball was his king. Right? And the same is true with Brett Favre. Football was his king. And they didn't know how to make sense of their lives outside of their sports. They didn't know how to answer the question, who am I, outside of their relationships with their profession. And the way that we talk about this as Christians is worship. Worship means ascribing worth to something. So whatever you ascribe worth to, Ultimate worth, whatever you enthrone in your heart, this is your king. Um, I've got a quote on the a bulletin, and for those of you who came to RUF last semester, you're familiar with this quote. I used it then. Um, it's from a guy named David Foster Wallace, and David Foster Wallace was a, a college professor, an essayist, um, considered one of the greatest minds of the 20th century, and uh, he gave a um, Kenyan college commencement speech in 2005. Um, and this is what he says in this speech. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. He's an atheist, by the way, or an agnostic. Um, There is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship 
be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Right? He's illustrating this point that whatever you name as king, you give authority to name you. Naming power as your king, you'll end up feeling weak or afraid. You name intellect, you're being seen smart as king. You end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Name beauty or sexual allure as king, you'll always feel ugly. And this dynamic is, of course, at work here at Wake. There are lots of different kings here waiting to answer your identity question. Lots of different things that you can make king. And each promises to answer the question, who am I for you? And perhaps one that I hear more than any others here is King Achievement, who tells you that you are your resume. The way that King Achievement teaches students a way to answer the question, who am I, is by looking at what they've accomplished. Who am I? Well, I can look at my academics or my my social life or my extracurriculars. Um, Answer the question, who am I, by looking and seeing, what does my resume say? You name your king and your king names you. So for us to answer the question, who am I, We must first answer the question, who is my king? So what we're going to do now is we're going to read the Bible together, and we're going to look at Jesus and see what happens when we name him king. We're going to read John 1, 35 through 42, and this is on your yellow sheets. Um, And this semester, what we're going to be doing during large group is we're going to be walking through the first 11 chapters of John together. And my hope is that what we'll see is that um, we'll actually see how um, Jesus provides himself to us as the answer to some of the most fundamental questions we ask as humans. Um, So that's what we're going to be doing this semester. So I'm going to read this. This is John 1, 35 through 42. And this is God's word for us and to us. It's completely true, and he gives it to us in love. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. For it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this night and your grace to us in Christ. And we pray now by your spirit, would you show us Jesus, um, the one whom you have enthroned as king. Pray in his name. Amen. So just to set the scene for us, um, John the Baptist has been down at the Jordan River baptizing preparing for the coming of the Christ, for preparing for Jesus. And as he's baptizing, he sees Jesus coming towards him, and he points and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is a little bit earlier in chapter 1. And he says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, The one on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, this is John speaking, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of, the God, the Son of God. So our passage, where we're picking up, um, it's the next day. John is down at the Jordan River again. He's with two of his disciples. He sees Jesus. He says, look, behold, the, the Lamb of God and his disciples hear him and leave John to follow Jesus. John names Jesus. He makes this statement of worship, this declaration that Jesus is king. And he's a particular kind of king. Look at verse 36. He says that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And those two disciples, Andrew and the unnamed disciple, respond to that name. They own it for themselves, and they follow Jesus. What this shows us is that when you meet the true king, you'll be willing to abandon everything, even good things, to follow him and let him name you. So Andrew hears John name Jesus as king, the Lamb of God. And then after meeting Jesus, he goes and finds his brother Simon and says, We found the Messiah. We found the Christ. And he brings Simon to Jesus. Now, Messiah is an Aramaic word, which is the Aramaic word for Christ, which is a Greek word, and it means anointed one. And it was the title that was given to the king of Israel. So what they would do with the king is they would anoint, they would actually pour oil on his head to set him aside as a unique individual who God chose to be king of his people. So Andrew says to his brother, we found the true king. And Simon goes to Jesus, and Jesus looks at him and he says, so you are Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, Peter, which means rock. Whoever you name as king, you give the authority to name you. And this is one function of kings. They name people. They give people their identity. They answer for them the question, who am I? We actually see this throughout the Bible. Kings throughout the Bible have this authority. Um, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, there's a, a book in the Old Testament um, called Daniel. It's about the prophet Daniel. And he um, goes into Babylonian captivity with King Nebuchadnezzar. And you remember Daniel has, if you're familiar with this, Daniel has three friends, Hannah, Michael, and Azariah, and then the king renames them. He renames Daniel Bethsajar and renames his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? The king has the authority to rename them because he has a function for them in his kingdom. And this isn't just um, the human kings in, in the Bible. We actually see this as uh, the picture of God as king in the Bible. Because in the beginning, in the first pages of the Bible, we see God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the great king of the universe, naming every created thing and giving them our identity. Right? He says, God says, let there be light. And he names the light day and the darkness night. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered up into one place. Let the dry land appear. He names the dry land earth. He names the water the seas. And he did this with the whole creation. And he called it, do you remember what he called it? He said, it's good. And then at the pinnacle of his creation, he made man and woman his image. He named them Adam and Eve, and he called it very good. And so, all of creation... From the smallest grain of sand to the largest star. And us, humans, made in the image of God. All of us were created by God the King and named by Him. And we receive our identity from God our King. We see the perfect balance and order of creation in this. Everything was very good. But things didn't stay that way, right? We read in Genesis 3 that Satan entered the garden and he destabilized Adam and Eve. He whispered lies to them. Can you trust the King who named you? And our first parents rejected God as their king and obeyed the lies of the serpent, enthroning themselves as king of their own lives. And the Bible calls this sin, 
rejecting God as the true king and looking to anything except him to give us our name. And their sin is our sin. That we look to anything except God to give us our true name. That we answer the question, who am I, by looking at anything other than Jesus to give us our identity. One way you could say this is that the human heart is a kingmaker. John Calvin, um, a pastor and theologian of the church in the 15th and 16th century, said the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Right? It's where our hearts are continually creating false kings, crowning kings, and then getting named by them. Now, I was thinking about this. And the idols of the college campus, the kings, the false kings of the college campus that will name you when you name them as king. Academic success. If you name intellect being seen as smart as your king, then you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Popularity. If your king is having the most friends or being named cool or light, then you're going to live in perpetual fear of people not liking you. And you will make all of your decisions out of that fear. If you name the fraternity or sorority or party scene as your king, if, if your king is being part of the right group, going to the best parties, being part of the in crowd, you will never feel rest and will live in between the longing of wishing that you are in a better or cooler group and the fear that you're going to be excluded from the one you're already in. Image. If you name beauty as king, or looking good or having the right look as king, then that king will name you ugly, not well-dressed enough, And if you do perfect your image, then all you're going to be thinking about is how good you look. And you'll be unable to love anyone because all you can see is the image that they're projecting. Here's the thing. Any identity other than the one one given to you by Jesus will never satisfy. It will never be enough. It will never actually fit because it's actually nothing. It's a false promise from a false king. So what happens when when Jesus renames you? What happens when you look to Jesus to answer the question, who am I? Well, look at Peter. Jesus renames Peter. Peter hears Jesus' name, goes to him, and then Jesus renames him. Jesus tells Peter that he will be the rock. But the story of Peter in the Gospels is anything but solid. He's a complete mess. But as he came to know Jesus as the true king, he became solid. And then he could look back over his life, over his story, And know who he is because of who Jesus is. Peter is the rock only if Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now imagine with me that Peter responded differently. If Jesus spoke to him and Peter said, Hey Jesus, that's cool, um, but I'm going to take a four-year break from this following you thing, and then we'll reconnect later. Alright, this is an absurd picture, but um, a common lie about college, and one that you guys have probably heard, is that it's a time when you get to hit pause on real life. Tom Petty said this. He said, one thing I've learned, you have four years to be irresponsible. Relax. Work is for people with jobs. Or people at Wake Forest. I guess you guys work well. You'll never remember class time, but you'll remember the time you wasted with your friends. So stay out light. Go out with friends on Tuesday when you have a paper due on Wednesday. Spend money you don't have. Drink until sunrise. Work never ends, but college does. So the sentiment in this is that college doesn't count. Right? College isn't real life. And that's a lot. College is real life. Because whoever you name as king while in college will name you. And just to understand, as an individual, you are giving over great authority to something to name you. Right? When you name something as king, you're actually giving over a tremendous amount of authority to have them name you. So a question, um, a legitimate question for you to have for me is then why should you name Jesus as your king? 
C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, it is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Let me say that again. Christianity, if, if false, is of no importance. And if it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Christianity claims that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And if he is risen, then everything that the Bible says is true. That he is the true king. Well, what kind of name does Jesus give? Well, look at what John the Baptist names Jesus. He names him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when he says Lamb of God, he's saying two very specific things. The first is he's, he's referencing the Exodus. Um, which, if you're unfamiliar with it, is the story in the Old Testament of how God rescued his people from slavery. The Hebrew people were enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years, and they cried out to God, and God heard their cries and sent Moses to them, who rescued them out of Egypt. And the way that God did this was that he sent a series of plagues or signs to Pharaoh. And the last plague, the tenth plague, was that he had his people, the people of the Hebrew people, um, kill a lamb and eat it, and then to take the blood of that lamb and to put it over the mantle of their front door. And he told them that if they did that, that night, the destroyer would come, this angel of death, and would strike down the firstborn child in any household that didn't have the blood over the door. This is um, what Jews celebrate as the Feast of Passover. And so what um, John is saying when he names him the Lamb of God is first he's saying, this is what we're talking about. This is the Lamb who was slain so that we would have life and not death. And the second thing it's referencing is Isaiah 63. Excuse me, Isaiah 53. And Isaiah was a prophet who lived 700 years before Jesus, and um, he made this prophecy about the one who would come to take away sin. And he said this, All like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What Isaiah was, was pointing towards um, in this picture was Jesus' death, death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. So that all who believe in Jesus Christ by faith receive justification, which is a word that the Bible uses to say the forgiveness of sins, that Jesus takes your sins from you and imputes to you, gives to you, credits to you the righteousness of Jesus. If you name Jesus as your king, he names you forgiven righteous, holy, beloved. Um, I think this is hard for us to believe because we often function out, out of what an author named John Freeman calls mugshot theology. And so our tendency is to think that God takes pictures of us at our worst. Mugshot, meg, uh, excuse me. mugshot theology is seeing yourself, even if you call yourself a Christian, seeing yourself in the mugshot that you've taken of yourself at your worst. When you've named and been named at the worst places of your life. Right? If you think about Hollywood and how um, the Hollywood mugshots, have you guys seen this? Where they'll catch somebody at their worst, like shoplifting or after a bender or totally drugged out. Or, I mean, and so you're used to seeing them all uh, you know, airbrushed on the cover of magazines and then you see their mugshot of them just absolutely at their worst. Um, and there's a sense in which when we name things other than Jesus as king... We've, we've come to feel at home in our own mugshot. 
We have this mug thought, mugshot theology because we know deep down that we deserve to be treated as our personal record demands. We know that someone has to pay, and that often keeps us from going to Jesus and his cross because we think that we need to pay for it ourselves. We think that we ought to atone for it ourselves. And when you name something other than Jesus as king for long enough, you come to define yourself by your temptations and your record of failure. I mean, how many of you, don't raise your hands, how many of you have this as your internal dialogue? I'm not skinny enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not funny enough. I'm not cool enough. I'm not wealthy enough. I'm not good enough. If you have faith in Christ, your mugshot is not the truest thing about you. Jesus has the authority to name you, and he renames you at great cost to himself and great benefit to you. Jesus is the lamb who was slain to take away your sin. He takes your sin and gives you his righteousness. And the Bible calls this grace, and it gets better, because Jesus names you first. Jesus names you first. In John's gospel, um, Peter doesn't name Jesus as king until John 6. The sixth chapter where he says, Lord, you are the Holy One of God. Peter names Jesus as king because Jesus has first named Peter as his beloved. And the same is true for you. Um, Folks at Summit already heard me tell this story, um, but I'm going to tell it again. Uh, Mary Clark and I have two children, Leo and Mary Landon. And Leo is almost five, and we have this sort of question and answer that we do with him. um, Either when he does something really great, or when he um, misbehaves. Um, disobeys and, and is disciplined. And we say this. Um, I say, Leo, does daddy love you more if you obey me? He says, no. I say, does daddy love you less if you disobey me? And he says, no. And I say, why? Um, and he says, because I'm your son. Well, he actually says, because you're my son. Because you think that's funny. But um, <laughs> and the same, the same is true for you. Um, uh, I think it was Aquinas who said this, that the love of God secures the cross of Christ. It's not the other way around. Um, the love of God secures the cross of Christ for you. You can name Jesus as king because he has first named you as his beloved. And you will be answering this question, who am I, for the rest of your lives. I thought it was something that was going to end when I was younger, but I'm still finding that I'm still wrestling with this question, who am I? And you will only have rest as you receive your name from the true King, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us as King, and that you and your grace name us as your beloved. Lord, would you help us um, to name you as King. We pray this in your name.